Hello, and welcome to the Just In Stride podcast. I'm your host, Justin Pugliese. If you love endurance sports, you've definitely come to the right place. On this show, we'll talk to athletes, coaches, and professionals who can help us reach our true potential. Being a student of distance running for over 10 years and interviewing people in the sport for the last five, I've learned a ton, but there's always more to discover. Everyone has a story, and I know you'll resonate with each of our guests as we embark on this new journey together. Join us at home, on the road, or while you run. Together, we'll have some fun. So follow along on Instagram at JustInStridePod and your favorite podcast platform and prepare to be inspired. Come along for the ride with Just In Stride. This episode is presented by our friends at Exact Nutrition, a tasty and healthy way for you to fuel your body before, during, and after a solid training session. I can't leave the house without a few fruit bars in my pocket and they never make it back home. Exact is offering you 15% off your order when you use the code JUSTINSTRIDE. So head to exactnutrition.com and fuel your goals today. Happy New Year everyone. I'm excited for the year ahead and I can't wait to share more inspiring stories with you all. For many of us, January can symbolize a fresh start or a new beginning, but it's important to realize that we can make changes at any moment in our lives regardless of the day, month, or year. Set a goal, make a plan, and take the necessary steps to get there. On this episode of Justin's Drive, get ready to be inspired by Paralympic bronze medalist, keynote speaker, and author Kevin Rempel. Kevin grew up learning how to work hard and the value of a dollar. He also loved motocross and the thrill it gave him, until one day a tragic accident took that away and at 23 he was told he would never walk again. Today, Kevin has defied the odds, learning how to walk again, becoming a Paralympic athlete in sledge hockey, speaking in front of large audiences, and even wrote his own book. He speaks passionately about what he calls the hero mindset, where by focusing on small things that make a big difference, we can become a hero in our own story. Kevin, welcome to the Justin Stride podcast. Yeah, buddy, so Justin, thanks for having me on, my man. Yeah, t- I mean, typically it's, you know, I'm, in, I'm interviewing uh, endurance athletes, you know, runners, swimmers, bikers and stuff like that. But after hearing your story, I just, I had to inquire and try and get you on the show because y- your story seems such like a, a, a life of endurance, you know, like li- life is endurance and it's so inspirational and motivational and um, I'm, I'm stoked to have you. Thank you. My pleasure. So how are you doing like to, like right now? Like what's going on in your life? Hopefully you get some breaks because I know you do a lot of talks. Any plans for the holidays? Right now, just looking forward to not having any plans for the holidays. I don't want to fill up my calendar. Uh, there's lots that I want to work on, not because I'm stressed or burnt out, but because I just love what I do. So yeah, um, non-work related things that I plan to do over the holidays, like my garage, uh, it's already been drywall, but I need to patch it. So I'm going to patch sand and paint it uh i'm super fired up for that because i love handiwork and just getting outside going on hikes i have traveled for the last five six weeks quite a bit and i can't wait to just like prioritize gym rest nutrition that sort of thing so that's that's what i'm looking forward to the most over the next few weeks yeah it sounds that sounds great you know some like just you time it sounds like so that's that's amazing can you like i like to learn about people um kind of like how they grew up you know, were you active as a kid, just your upbringing and where that kind of leads you? Yeah, when I was a kid, I definitely was active. Uh, my parents got me into stick and ball sports uh, as a kid, you know, late, up until the age of around 10 or 12. That's when I started uh, discovering action sports, uh, skateboard, snowboard, BMX and motocross. So that carried with me throughout my teens. And I definitely love being outside. I mean, I'm thankful that my parents, my dad's or my dad particularly really wanted me to get into uh, working a part-time job as a kid. So started with a, a greenhouse, a paper route, worked at a gas station, a couple of gas stations, and uh, eventually got a job as a bricklayer. So I was building houses, uh, flagstone walkways, chimneys. Uh, and that was uh, something I'm really happy I did experience as a kid because as I've gotten older, you know, the, the skill sets from the trades not being afraid to like, you know, get dirty uh, has really helped me later in life. Like the drywall project I was just mentioning. It's like, I'm able to do that because I learned how to do that stuff when I was a teenager. 
Yeah, that's amazing. And, you know, those skills are like so valuable and kind of a lost art, if you will. Um, and kids maybe this, these days, like I know I grew up, I was cutting grass and stuff in the neighborhood. My dad was always fixing cars and I kind of wish I paid more attention, to be honest, because he saved us so much money over over the years. Um, like what were your priorities as a young adult? Like was it going to school? Was it sport? Uh, I know you got big into motocross. Um, what did it look like for you as a teen? Yeah, when I was uh, in my teens, priority wise, it was, you know, I just got through school cause I had to do it. I didn't want to be in school. Uh, bricklaying, like I said, the, the jobs were more of a, a means to generate income to pay for fuel for or parts for my dirt bike. And that's, that's like basically all I wanted to do when I was younger was just ride. And all I could think about was riding. So in school I was drawing like the logos of Fox racing or shift or, uh, anything like that in my school book. Um, I remember I'll give you like a little funny story. I've never, I don't really chat about or share much, but one of my, one of my other jobs was, uh, working at a bee a prairie. So when, you know, like where does honey come from? Well, the honeycomb boxes are in the fields where the bees, uh, build their colony. And then you just got to take that into a warehouse type facility uh, to extract the the wax off the top so you can scrape the honey to filter it to sell honey. And my mm -hmm. dad got me a job at this uh, Bia Prairie. So I'm now in a warehouse building with like literally millions of bees. And uh, it was paying me $7 an hour, which was $2 an hour more than the greenhouse job was. And uh, my first or second day on the job, I got stung nine times, I remember. I got stung in like the armpit in between the fingers, you know, like behind the ear, like all the worst spots that you would never want to get stung by a bee. And uh, I remember going into the bathroom crying because I just, I wanted to, I wanted to quit so bad. And there was two things that happened. Number one, I came home, told dad I wanted to quit. He's like, well, you're not quitting unless you have another job lined up first. And so I didn't have another job lined up. But then part number two was uh, as bad as it was, I knew if I had to quit, or go back to the greenhouse job, I'd probably make $2 an hour less because this was a tough job. And $2 an hour extra per day at like a seven hour day is 14 extra dollars and $14 bought a lot of gas that I put up with being stung by bees for two years because I wanted, I didn't want to have less money for my dirt bike. So it's just a funny memory of like, you know, the things you'll do when the why is greater than the how it's like, I, I, I eventually got used to the bee stings, but uh, I was willing to like suffer because $2 extra per hour was putting more fuel on my dirt bike. Mm -hmm. And I find like, that's so interesting to it. I mean, you learn like, it's fun to look back as a kid, you know, cause I, you know, I kind of looked at cutting grass almost the same way where I wanted to buy a car. So, I, you know, how do I do that? You know, do I, maybe I charge a couple, I was charging much 15 bucks or something but if i charge 17 this year like how will that like the entrepreneurial skills that you kind of come up with and like everything's cash you know like in that regard but kind of in the same you know kind of what you're saying like that puts gas in your bike and that fuels your passion so that's that totally makes sense to go through the pain to to get there where did the bike motocross biking passion come from because it sounds like that was a big part of you growing up and it's, uh, you know, it may be not as accessible of a sport for, for a lot of kids. Yeah. Motocross came into my life because the two neighbor kids down the street got bikes, uh, at Christmas. So when I was 10 years old, I, you know, this is December. I mean, there's snow on the ground, but, uh, all of a sudden heard the sound of a bike going in the field behind me. And I was like instantly just drawn to the sound, the speed, the look. And I asked my dad for a bike right away, but he said no. And it took two years uh, begging, asking, convincing until he finally caved. At the age of 12, I got my first bike. And yeah, it, I my paper route helped pay for that first one. My parents lent me some money to make up the difference on that first purchase. But uh, yeah, I we definitely weren't, uh, we were a middle class family. We weren't wealthy, we weren't poor. Um, had enough to kind of get by. and. Uh, I was not either successful enough or could we afford to go far in, in terms of like racing. I mean, it definitely costs a lot of money, but I just rode in the field, the trail, the Bruce trail and had fun. And it, it was my happy place because on the bike with the helmet on, 
I, I would tune out and shut off and just be in my own world. And uh, that to this day is bl bloods in, or sorry, um, bikes are in my blood. It's like, even though I don't ride like I used to, um, I still love motorcycles just as much. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned too, like growing up in a middle-class family, like not super, you know, well-off, just hardworking. And, you know, the, you find those values kind of stay instilled in you, like watching your parents and, you know, how you, how you grew up and how you are today. There are many values that I'm like super grateful for that my parents instilled in me. Definitely, you know, like I mentioned, dad teaching me hard work, discipline, you know, uh, those are things that I, I don't regret though. Of course there's a balance, like just working hard is not going to get you as far ahead in life as you want to like creating it, finding an education that suits your desires. Important. My dad, as an example, uh, was very old school, wanted to be like college, the way college is the way. Well, there's nothing I wanted to do in college. Like I'm an entrepreneur. I knew that then I didn't know it how well to describe it at the age of 20, but um, I knew I wanted to like kind of do my own thing. So I went to college, but, uh, it was not because I wanted to. Um, so, you know, things that my, I'm grateful for, you know, being taught how to respect other people, how to communicate, um, how to put yourself out there, you know, get a job, don't rely on your parents. Like, I'm so thankful they taught me to earn my own money, even if it was hourly, uh, rather than being handed things, I'm glad that I went through some of those uh, lessons as a kid from what my parents taught me. Mm -hmm. And when, did you kind of have an idea of what your future looked like? Like, was it in, to become a professional motocross rider? Was it to be an entrepreneur? Since school didn't really do much for you. Yeah. So we haven't gotten to the point of like my accident stuff yet, but um, mm -hmm. yeah, when I was a kid growing up, I mean, I, I was just doing what I was told and didn't really know of many other paths available to me. So I was, uh, yeah, laying bricks and had completed my college education, but I just went back into the trades because kids that, for example, that graduated beside me in the marketing class were, you know, going on to get jobs at 14 or 15 bucks an hour. And I could like turn around the next day and get a job for 20 bucks an hour on the job site, being outside, not on the computer. So I, uh, at that point in my life, I had just seen the trades were probably going to be the answer and, mm -hmm. uh, was paycheck to paycheck though at the same time. Yeah, totally. So then like, take us down that like career path of the, or the, of the biking, you know, the high, you know, getting into competitions and stuff like that. Cause that, you know, is a life altering event that maybe changed the trajectory of your, of your life. So, you know, you have the hardworking skills, personal skills, and then also, you know, competitive side to you in the, in the biking, but you know, those are extreme sports and those come with risks. Racing was just, uh, Something I wanted to give a shot at, but quickly I realized I was not cut out to definitely get any far. I was not, sorry, what I'm trying to say. I knew racing was something I wanted to pursue, but I definitely wasn't good enough to take that too far. And eventually freestyle motocross came onto the scene, which we now are familiar with through the X Games. Though in the 90s, it was literally just starting. And I saw the riders, wanted to learn tricks, and I... I got a few under my belt and then in my early twenties, like 21, 22, 23, I, I just put in time to practice stunts and then started a business uh, at the age of 23 to put on stunt shows, uh, hmm. first show on Canada day of 06. And then, uh, at that time achieved all my childhood dreams, got paid for riding, signed autographs for little kids in a magazine through my sponsor. Um, <clears throat> jumped in front of a crowd and I, I got to give it my all. I felt like I'd really achieved my childhood dream. But uh, two weeks later at my second show, I showed up and wasn't mentally focused. And on the first jump of the day, not even trying a trick, I ended up crashing. And in, in that crash, I ended up breaking my, my back, my pelvis, my ribs, and I was instantly paralyzed. Uh, do you remember anything from that, that moment? Like, I, I mean, I've spoken, I've, I've gotten to speak to a few people who got into, you know, through extreme sports, skiing, wakeboarding, um, having these types of accidents that alter their lives and their physical mobility. 
um, it varies to how much you can remember in that moment. Um, do you have any recollection of it? Yeah. And I, and I also am aware too, sometimes I talk about these things like, Oh, that happened. No big deal. Like, no, it was, <laughs> it was, a it was, uh, it was a bad day. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. So to kind of take everyone back to what that was like, uh, I showed up there with the wrong attitude, my ego. I couldn't, I didn't understand what ego was at the time. I'm 23 years old and I was pissed off that other riders were being paid to be there that day. That day I was not being paid to, to ride, but uh, I felt like I had something to prove. I was in front of these other guys that I didn't really like that much. And I thought I was going to show them up. So yeah, first jump of the day, not even trying a trick, I take off and my body position wasn't right. So midair, I um, had to make a decision either stay on or jump off. My decision was uh, if I stayed on the bike, I'm probably going to head dive in the ground and break my neck. So mm -hmm. best case scenario is jump off, break my legs. And as a result, I ended up ditching the bike midair. Uh, I free fell from the sky about 75 feet in distance, about 25, 30 feet high. And then the crash landed on my 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 ass pretty much. Uh, and then, and uh, yeah, I was instantly paralyzed and I was deemed an incomplete paraplegic. Which, and I was told by doctors I would likely never walk again. But fortunately, um, how, I, how I broke my back was that I had actually fractured and dislocated my vertebrae. So surgery realigned it, but from all the bruising and swelling and uh, trauma to the area, it had cut off all of the nerves uh, and sensation below my chest. But uh, I, I, I put in days, weeks, months, and years of hard work um, <clears throat> to journey to get back on my feet uh, was in no way an easy journey. I spent about, uh, six weeks before I finally got my first toe to move. And, uh, I remember getting the advice from my friend, Chris, who's just like, you got to try every night, every morning, stare at your toes. Even if you can't feel them, just try to make them move. And, uh, it was about at that six week mark that I finally just got like one flicker in one of my toes. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, I was like, it was like game on. It was like, if I can get one toe to move, I bet you I can get another toe to move. And eventually about a week later, I got another toe. But uh, I spent years trying to get back on my feet through uh, leg braces and walkers and crutches and canes and wheelchairs. And uh, we can get into it. But uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I went through the dark times uh, as much as I've had the highs of, of uh, the comeback. Um, it was yeah. no easy journey. That's for sure. Well, when they say, you, you know, how do you handle that information? You know, you're never going to walk again. This is like the fear of, uh, I mean, at 23, you know, your life's just getting started. You know, um, I can't imagine what that would like, what that would feel like, you know, in, in those, in those moments. And, you know, how do you like those odds are none, you know? So why are you walking? <laughs> like, why are you walking now? <laughs> Why I'm walking. Yeah. Yeah. You know, no, I, it's, and it's crazy when you think about like the whole, I, th I think, you know, I think that's what they need to say because they don't know. They can't predict what's going to happen, you know, uh, through rehab and they can only give so much to all every individual. I'm sure you've seen this and met people and I'm sure the stories are countless, you know, for people that can and can't. Yeah, I agree. Like, I remember when the doctors shared the information with me that I'm like likely never going to walk again. There was definitely like in my mind, the fuck you kind of thought, but more so I respected what their opinion was because they're like you say, they, they're not going to, I'm sure their perspective is that they want to err on the shot side of caution. They don't want to promise something and then under deliver like that. You're going to be fine. And then you're totally not fine. So they're giving what typically happens as a, as an outcome. But also in my mind, I thought to myself, I'm like, you don't know me. You haven't even given me a chance yet. And, and I'm said to myself, I'm like, I'm going to work as hard as I can to get better. And when I, when I've done everything that I've deemed to be possible and I feel like I cannot make any more progress, that's when I'll say that this is where I'm going to be, but I'm not going to accept someone's opinion of me today as my definite outcome when I haven't even started the journey yet. 
Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how do you how do you decide to go down that path instead of just saying just accepting it and 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 giving up? You know, because you you probably sat there for days, weeks, months, not moving anything, right? Like you were saying, um, that's the you know discouraging, demoralizing. I can again. You can only imagine like what that would feel like to to think you're going to be in a bed your entire life, you know, and what kind of life quality of life will that be? You know, so how do you take the high, like, how do you stay motivated? You know, some days I can't get out for a run, you know, but like, how do you, it's, it's when you listen to this and then someone in front of you, you're not going to walk in. Now you're walking, you're standing, you're doing all kinds of stuff. Like the journey is so, can be so long, right? Yeah. A few thoughts to come to mind about, so first of all, I'll share this. Um, one of my favorite speakers, he's passed away a few years ago. His name's Jim Rohn. And what he calls it is the magic and the mystery. Mm -hmm. When it comes to managing change as an example, he goes, the magic is that anybody can, but the mystery is that not everybody will. Like everybody can choose the right mindset. Everyone can choose the right decision. The mystery is that not everybody will, and why won't they? What I knew in my experience was that, number one, as an example, I'd already encountered some adversity, and I'd already proven to myself that I'm capable of getting through something else that was, I'm not, in many cases, smaller, but those smaller wins gave me the confidence to take on bigger obstacles. Mm -hmm. And as you hear today, especially, many people, I think, are afraid of failing. I mean, even as adults. But it's from attempting something and then failing that we find the strength, the courage, the resilience that if we've done this, even if it didn't work out, we become stronger because we learn from what we're capable of. So prior to me breaking my back, I'd actually already broken my left leg three times. I got hit by a car and then I broke it okay. twice more on my dirt bike. So in my mm -hmm. mind, I already, I thought I knew the process that when you have an injury, like when you break a bone, you have surgery, you do therapy, you do physio and you get better. And that's just how it works. So in my mind, my breaking my back was the exact same. Now, in hindsight, I was naive because I was calling my boss on the job site to lay bricks. I'm like, yeah, I'll only be down for a couple couple weeks and then I'll be back. And like fucking four years later, I was finally figuring it out. But uh -huh, uh, yeah. but that mindset, it's like, you know, for, for any younger folks who are listening here, to not be scared about... Um, you know, trying things and, and not succeeding at them because that's going to set you up for being more resilient later on in life. Mm -hmm. I, it's, it's just so interesting to me, like over the couple of years with COVID, I delivered a number of like over a couple, I think maybe close to 200 presentations now at this point, um, speaking about mental health, resilience and perseverance. <clears throat> and what was so interesting to me, what's fascinating, I remember about the beginning of COVID is I was getting hired to speak so frequently about resilience. People want to be resilient at the beginning of COVID, especially yet. Nobody wants to go through what it takes to be resilient. It's like, mm -hmm. you don't become resilient without doing hard things, but people mm -hmm. want to be resilient and skip the hard part. So what I have learned through life, like the more you're willing to like step into the fear, that difficulty or do the hard thing, like you're just setting yourself up for an easier life later on. You think you're playing it safe and, and doing the easy thing in the moment, but it's only going to make things 10 times harder down the road because you may not have the, um, what's the word? Like you may not be able to bounce back as quickly because you're older, you have less time, you have, have less resources, you have, uh, your health is not as great. It's harder to be resilient often, not always, over time. And so what I learned is that, uh, through embracing failing, let's say, or embracing doing hard things when I was younger, whether that was because I stayed working in the beer prairie to get stung by bees or, you know, working a job at the gas station like you would have mowed lawns and you're sitting outside in the rain or breaking bones and not being scared to like get back on the bike. It's like all that stuff sets you up for later in life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's doing the hard stuff. Life's not easy. You know, uh, I heard recently like, there's always going to be problems in life. You just can't see them as problems. You just got to know how to solve them, you know? Um, and the only way you can know is by trying and failing and 
like no one got anywhere by being perfect. You know, that's, yeah, yeah. that's the, you know, even in training, you know, you trial and error and, you know, you want to get this jump right. Well, you try and try and try again, you know, <clears throat> did you have any like role models or mentors that kind of helped you through this difficult time? Like mentally, you mentioned your friend that was encouraging you to keep going. Um, you, you know, I, I've read your, your story and I know that your father also had a similar type of accident too. Um, you know, and, and you were both kind of also in that together, you know? Yeah. So to touch on my dad and then I can touch on some heroes as well. Mm -hmm. My dad, uh, we grew up, well, he grew up hunting and fishing and hockey. Those were his sports. When I rode dirt bikes, uh, we didn't hang out as, we no longer hung out like we did uh, prior to that. But around the age of 19, I started generating an interest in hunting again. So we were uh, out deer hunting, building a tree stand. Uh, when one of the branches my dad was standing on broke and my dad fell uh, two stories in front of my own eyes straight to the ground and broke his back uh, just eight months from retirement. So that uh, was definitely pretty traumatic, you know, uh, life changing as a 19 year old to see your dad paralyzed in front of your own eyes. And uh, it changed the dynamic of our household. Uh, it was significant, it was very difficult, you know, trying to navigate that change, you know, nothing was the same. And I can get into some details about that as well. But um, when I was younger, my heroes were uh, action sports athletes. So other, you know, Tony Hawk, Matt Hoffman, Dave Mira, Bucky Lassick, uh, you know, Mike Metzger, Travis Pastrana. And, uh, when I got injured, so then dad had his injury and then I had my injury and, uh, my heroes shifted because I definitely still looked up to motocross riders who would get back on the bike. And that was something that I strive to and did accomplish. But at the same time, living with a spinal cord injury, I had to find uh, new people to look up to. So um, I picked up Christopher Reeves' um, autobiography, but uh, mm -hmm. the one book that really resonated with me was this guy named W. Mitchell, who, um, crazy story, long, long story short, in his 20s, riding a motorcycle, San Francisco on the street, truck pulls out, cuts him off, crashes his bike, gas cap comes off, burns like 90% of his body, loses his fingertips, and this guy comes back rebuilds his life to then flying an airplane as a hobby and uh, takes off. There's a malfunction. He has to make a crash landing and becomes a paraplegic in the process. So he's a burn victim. It, like face is burned, everything loses his fingers. And now he's a paraplegic and the guy still picks himself back up again. And uh, yeah. he ends up going to become literally the face of a city uh, the mayor of Crested Butte, Colorado and saves this uh, town from a mining company coming through, goes on to speak and uh, for Tony Robbins stages back in the day. And, uh, mm -hmm. and he became a new hero in what I was going through. I was like, man, I'm like, you know, we hear this all the time. Someone is, someone else is out, out there has probably got it worse than you have for perspective. And I was like, man, if this guy can get through this, I'm like, Despite my story, I know I can still get through what I'm going through. And uh, yeah, W. Mitchell was someone that really I really looked up to when I was going through my accident. I still have chills. I have chills from what you're just saying. Like I'd never heard that story before, but that's that's why you know? like talk about getting knocked down again and again and again. Like one of those three things alone would be enough to like take somebody out for the rest of their life if they didn't have a strong mindset. And this guy took down like three of like the worst things possible. That's insane. Yeah. That's, and then, you know, you had it right too. You said like someone's kind of always got it worse, you know, no matter what you're going through, you know, you, you can't complain when you hear stories like this, you know, like, I mean, how, how does someone like that get through? How do you get through your, your adversity? Um, like with your dad, you know, it sounds like when we started this conversation and it sounds like you really had a nice relationship, but then seeing somebody go through something like that um, later in life than, than you did, <clears throat> you said it changed the dynamic and everything. 
Um, like, how did you kind of navigate that? Then watching that and then having it happen to you, how does that not impact you? Yeah, dad being injured severe, severely impacted me. I mean, he got injured four years before I did. And seeing how my dad navigated his injury really showed me how I did not want to approach life. Um, I know my dad was a great dad. He did everything that he felt like he could do to move forward. While at the same time, uh, his attitude about being, you know, negative, cynical, pessimistic about understandably feeling like he got robbed out of life is what uh, kept my dad stuck mentally because he would not accept his injury, not accept what happened to him. And he would not accept his, his, his new reality. So it severely affected me because as a result, he drove his family, uh, his friends away in many cases. He developed a gambling addiction and friends didn't want to go gamble with him. So, and then mm -hmm. uh, five years after my uh, dad's accident, my mom ended up leaving my dad. And my mom left my dad not because of his disability, but because of my dad's attitude towards his disability. Seven weeks after my mom left, she ended up taking, or he ended up taking his own life. It was, uh, yeah, he, he felt like at this point, he's like, why, why am I around anymore? Which I can go into detail and stories about why I absolutely think my dad had tremendous options in front of him. But um, <clears throat> how my dad's accident affected me was just like, I, I learned how I did not want to be. You know, when I got, when I had my injury, I knew that I wanted to be super appreciative and super grateful for everybody that supported me, that helped me, that was there to call or check in and try and, you know, load my wheelchair in the vehicle when I couldn't do it. That would drive me around just to get me outside of the house. It was like, I wanted to be really appreciative of everything like that. Um, <clears throat> I just wanted to like have a good attitude. Like I get asked people who have new spinal cord injuries or disabilities. It's like, you know, what's um, a piece of advice that I could hear to help, you know, my spouse who's supporting me, this and that, like, how can I, how can we as a family navigate this injury the best way possible? And the answer is attitude. It's like, I, I meet people frequently who support others who are going through some really tough stuff. And uh, I, this happened to me like a few months, uh, months ago, sorry, weeks ago, I was with uh, a gentleman, his wife had, um, like a brain hemorrhage about 10 years ago. And so she has poor balance and she loses focus and has trouble even eating, I believe at times. But um, I asked him, I'm like, you're so enthusiastic. You're so supportive. Like you love her so much. Like, what is it um, that helps you want to do this for so long? Like for the years that you've already supported her and in the future, and like, he didn't even skip a beat. Like the first answer Emilio's mouth was that she has such a great attitude about it. That it's not a burden. And I just remember that living that myself and also how true that is. It's like people will support people through some really difficult stuff. As long as they have the right attitude that they're not, you know, playing a victim that they're putting an effort and just like that little bit of effort just shows like, Hey, I know you're doing your best and let me help you with everything that you can't do to get you the rest of the way. Yeah. And like, you can learn something from, you know, seeing what also what someone else goes through, you can also learn something and, and from them. And also it helps can help your own situation or your own mindset and your own attitude too. Um, and I'm, I'm very sorry uh, to hear like, that's how, how things went, you know? Um, and yeah, and, and, you know, it's good that you kind of went down a different road and you stayed, you know, positive about it. And you had that mindset to, and, you know, resilience to keep going. Wait, so in the, in the recovery process, how do you go from a, a toe wiggle to walking? And is there a moment where things start to click a little bit faster, like, I'm just wondering how that looks, you know, for you. Like, is it once that happens, then things start to move a little bit faster in the recovery? Or does it have to be a whole foot? Or, you know, maybe you can touch on yeah. that. I'm just curious. Yeah. Yeah, it's all good. Well, 
what I was taught when I first got into rehab was that the first six, 12, 18 months of your recovery are the most important. That's where you're going to make the most progress because you're still healthy. Your body's still fresh. And, uh, you know, your nerves are trying to like reconnect or reawaken, let's say. So I knew I had to put in like a tremendous amount of work in the beginning, especially to try and maximize my, my recovery. And after I got that first toe around six weeks, it really was just consistently putting in that effort. Like I said, to get one more toe on the other foot and then about three more toes on the other foot and then three more toes here. And I was standing, taking some steps with leg braces on before I could even fully feel my legs. I still can't fully feel my legs, but you, you're, you're making the body move before it's even ready to show it like what it's supposed to do. And what, mm -hmm. something I've learned through living with a disability and seeing other people with disabilities is like the body is insanely amazing in how it can adapt like how muscles will start to you'll overdevelop muscles in other areas to compensate where you're lacking. Like that's what I've done. I have mm -hmm. way bigger quads than I prefer to have because I have no glutes or hamstrings, but thankfully they overdeveloped to help me walk. Otherwise I, I may not do what I do, but um, yeah, the body's resilient. The you, we are human beings can be very resilient. And the, just the journey to walk was like, you know, I was in a, the rehab center for four months, 10 months in a wheelchair, two months on canes, walking, riding in a year. But even after like 15 months, uh, I tried a Botox treatment for my muscle spasms in my legs and it didn't work. And I had to go back in the wheelchair for six months. Like it was messy. It was hard. You know, I felt like a guinea pig for many years, trying different medications for spasms, bowel and bladder issues, pain, depression, and the side effects. And it's like, you feel like a punching bag. It's just, it's mm -hmm. a mess trying to put trying to put your life back together. I just had someone share with me, um, Howard Brown, uh, shared a great analogy. He goes, it's kind of like Humpty Dumpty has to put the pieces of the puzzle back together again. It's like, it's shattered. And all of a sudden it's like, how, how does this fit? What is this new thing going to look like? And it's never going to look the same. And so when we're going through transition, it's, uh, one of the best pieces of advice I could share with anybody that I had to practice and still do this today in many ways so you just got to practice acceptance it's like the the more we live in the past about what once was or dreaming of what future we thought was supposed to be we're never living in the present moment and that's where that disconnect and that disappointment comes from mm -hmm. and so every single day the more we can reset ourselves mentally back to like hey this is where i am and just accept the truth and reality of what you have but then take not just one step but like i was saying one toe at a time now you're starting to move forward. And sometimes progress might mean that you just got out of bed, but that's still progress that day. Yeah. And I think a lot of people can resonate with that. Um, it could be, you know, that they want to start running or, you know, just get out the door, put your shoes on, go for a walk, you know, start with that. And then it's amazing what you can do once you just get that, the habits going. Was there something in particular that you maybe took for granted before this happened? Like, was there something that you, I mean, you, you probably had to adapt your house a little bit and, but was there some, something that was just extra frustrating? Like that you were just like, oh, this is something that was used to be so easy, you know, but like, I mean, everything must've been difficult, but I don't know if there's one thing that really stood out. The irony of the fact my dad was paralyzed before I was meant that our, home was actually already wheelchair accessible. Uh -huh. um, right. Um, so, but when I got injured, dad and I butted heads really bad. I moved back home and, and within four months I had to move out cause I, we didn't get along very well. <clears throat> and I moved into an accessible apartment. Um, I don't recall something that stood out to me in terms of like what I took for granted. And in fact, I remember the opposite because my dad was paralyzed. I remember deliberately when I was at college that, you know, we were at Niagara College and there's three floors going to class, you know, beginning or end of summer classes. And you're carrying, we had textbooks. We had no iPads back then. You got to carry every textbook for every class in your backpack. And it was yeah. heavy as hell, right? Yeah. So it's like, you're sweating getting to class. And we had to go, like, there was an elevator, but there was also the stairs. And I remember deliberately every single time I, I'm not saying 100%, maybe 90%, 95%. 
I would take the stairs nearly every single time because I would think about my dad. I'm like, what if there was one day that I may not be able to take the stairs? I'm going to wish I would have. Because I know what my dad mm -hmm. told me. My dad said to me, I'm not, verbatim, I'll never forget it. He goes, if I could give up everything I had, all the money I have, all the possessions I have, I would live naked under a bridge again if I could just be, have the ability to walk. And that mm -hmm. went through my head for years that, uh, you know, my dad is at home and he can't walk and he wishes he could take stairs. So when I was in college, I would always take the stairs and I show up to class with a fucking sweaty back and sweaty armpits because of my damn backpack yeah. full of textbooks. But I, and so when I broke my back, I didn't have regrets because I remember thinking like, I did not take for granted the fact that I could walk. Um, there's probably something else, but um, mm -hmm. yeah, I just, I remember that vividly at college, like take the stairs because there might be one day you can't. Yeah. Right. You do it while you can. Like, yeah, crazy. And and so, you know, you went from a motocross to then, you know, you had a career in sledge hockey. Like, why? Did, like, how did you decide on sledge hockey? Did you know anything about that sport before? Um, you know, you, you end up excelling at the sport. So, like, what was the yeah. intro like? How did you discover it? I mean, I don't know one sledge hockey player. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, I actually, um, <clears throat> how I found out about sledge hockey, I was volunteering at wheelchair basketball uh, two years after my accident. Because for two years, I didn't even know the Paralympics existed. The only thing I knew mm -hmm. was wheelchair racing. I thought, I'm not going to race, so whatever. Then uh, at wheelchair basketball, another kid named Kevin, also with a spinal cord injury, rolls up beside me. I was still in a wheelchair at that time, and he rolls up in his wheelchair beside me. And he looks at me, he's like, hey, have you ever tried sledge hockey before? I'm like, no, what's that? <laughs> and he leans in, he goes, it's real sick. You get to hit people. <laughs> he's like, you get to hit people with disabilities. And I'm like, what? I'm like, dude, I'm like, that sounds so wrong. And then I'm like, where do I sign up? <laughs> Jesus. But My literally, that was, that was literally how I got introduced to the sport. And I found out there was a, a local team, played recreationally with Niagara Thunderblades, second year Team mm -hmm. Ontario, and then the third year I made Team Canada, joined after the Vancouver Paralympics. Mm -hmm. Went on to uh, play five years, bronze, uh, sorry, gold medal at 2013 Worlds, and a bronze medal at the 2014 Paralympics in Sochi, Russia. Amazing. Right, so what was that all whole experience like, you know? I mean, you never had these like big aspirations as a as a motocross, like you just did that as a passion, but then did you ever see yourself as an elite athlete? You know, this created a, kind of an opportunity for that to happen. You were good at it. Um yeah, what yeah. what is that like? Yeah, I often feel like I got to live my motocross dreams through sledge hockey. And motocross it, I lived it for a day, but it was, it was over in two weeks later. In sledge hockey, I got paid to be an athlete, paid to travel the world. You know, again, I got to sign autographs for kids. You know, I was in the media uh, through my competition. And again, I felt like I'd reached a, a level of potential that I always dreamed of. And yeah, I was living my high performance dream. I mean, I never thought that on, in motocross, I'd make it onto the world stage. I was never good enough to do that. I was look, like pretty good rider locally. But uh, in sledge hockey, I reached the pinnacle with the, with the team. And uh, it was a dream come true for sure. I, I had that drive as a, as a teenager, um, as a kid, that I wanted to be a pro athlete. And even though it was only a few years, uh, I got to live it. And, you know, I, I, I also share the story too. Like my Olympic dream was born at 2 a.m. watching YouTube drinking beer at the age of 28. <laughs> like... Yeah. I didn't even know that I didn't even know the Paralympics existed. I didn't watch the Olympics as a kid. I had just found out that there was a team to join recreationally. And then on Facebook, somebody sends me a link to watch team Canada winning gold in 2006 on YouTube. And literally at like 2 AM at the age of 28 drinking beer. I'm like, I'm going to the Paralympics. <laughs> <laughs> like that Incredible. was it. That's how it happened. Uh, which I think is amazing for anyone to think about. It's like, you know, life's funny, right? You know, 
sometimes we have we feel like maybe our time has passed. Uh, we don't know where which direction we're heading in. And I've had so many different funny moments like that where I, I believe personally that life's often preparing us for something greater. We just can't see it. And so every day you wake up, you feel like you're not making progress. But I, I've lived it and learned it myself. It's like you got to keep putting in those steps, putting in the reps, because you never know when that opportunity comes and you want to be ready to grab it. So I was grateful that I put in the work for those two years before I found such hockey existing because I finally physically got to a place where I could get in a sled and start pursuing that dream. And, you know, several years later, it was a dream come true. Incredible. And, and does the disability level of the athletes vary? Like you, you must, I'm always curious about that. Um, to what degree and what kind of qualifies you as a, as a, uh, Paralympic, Paralympic athlete. Um, you must have shared or met so many incredible people. Was that like the biggest intro to the community? Um, for you also like being part of that yeah getting involved in paralympics period whether it's summer or winter especially for anyone living with a disability or a family member who has a disability is without question one of the best things you can do because you're going to be exposed to other people going through similar challenges and you're not going to feel alone in your journey so what i've learned is like these sports are not just for the athletes and the kids and the younger people who play, but it's for the parents because the parents are sitting up in stands together and they're talking with other parents who also are trying to navigate life, supporting a child or a family member with a disability. And it becomes such a fa it's a fantastic community. Like there are so many people who are just eager to help, to help you see a shortcut, help you think differently, to help you feel okay that you're not alone. It's a complete game changer in terms of uh, your recovery your, your wellness and, and your mental health as you live life with a disability. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like in that is the silver lining in that is, is uh, special connections that you can make that maybe I would never be able to have these types of connections, you know? And I just find it so interesting, no matter what it is. And, and this is through sport, you know, uh, it could be running, it could be swimming, it could be anything that, there's these communities that exist and because you were in that place, you had access to it, you know, and, and in that you were not alone. And I think that's the magic in that, you know, and so sharing with family, sharing with athletes similar to yourself. And I think I was asking more like, what's the degree of disability amongst these athletes also, um, right. you know, are people, you know, able to walk, but, uh, you know, guys, you know, just wheelchair bound. What's the, you know, what does that look like too? <clears throat> yeah. So in uh, different Paralympic sports, there's different classification processes. In sledge hockey at a local level, anybody can play, even yourself as an able-bodied person without disability. The rules are just, you can only have two able-bodied players on the ice at uh, mm. one time. It's not until you get to a provincial or a national level that you require uh to have a disability and how that's uh, considered is through uh, a physical assessment that has a point system based on things like mobility, flexibility, whether you have a limb or not. I mean, if you're missing a limb, you're obviously <laughs> going to clear, but in cases like my own self, uh, despite having two legs, you know, I have muscle spasms, my legs twitch. Like I mentioned, I have a, I have strong quads, but I have no hamstrings, no glute muscles. And, um, once you're qualified, you're qualified for the rest of the time in sport. So mm -hmm. that's how sledge hockey works. Uh, different disabilities include, of course, spinal cord injuries, but amputees, spina bifida, cerebral palsy, like those are the top four most prominent. Uh, some people okay. with cognitive disabilities play sledge hockey. There are a few blind players. A um, couple, like there's a guy, he's got CP, he's got two arms, but he's got low dexterity. So he still plays sledge hockey with just one arm. Like there are incredible mm -hmm. human beings in this world of overcoming tremendous adversity. But uh, even if you, if sledge, sledge hockey is not your thing, like there's so many Paralympic sports out there. There's uh, summer sports, there's javelin, there's track and field, there's mm -hmm. um, uh, bocce. 
for people that have like severe disabilities that may be a quadriplegic, but they can still use their mouth with a, a straw to like push the ball down the ramp. Um, I'm trying to remember the other one. Like uh, I can't remember the name. Uh, it's blind soccer. It's like, there's crazy mm -hmm. stuff. There's crazy stuff. So like the, the message I, why I want to share this is to say, you know, if, if you just had a setback and acquired a disability, like there's a community and there's an activity that you can get involved in. You just got to go find it and we can help you if you want to connect with me or someone else. There's someone in the community that's willing to introduce you to where you can get started. Yeah, it's amazing. And it's it's powerful too, you know, in, in the rehab process and just to feel some kind of belonging too because, you know, chances are something tragic has happened in your life that <clears throat> puts you in that in that spot and that's not easy. Now, like... As far as your career goes, you know, now you're, you're speaking in front of large audiences, you're sharing your story, like when, did, how did that kind of develop? Is that something you always knew you wanted to do? Um, was it just like one opportunity that kind of snowballed for you? Um, there's so many things I want to kind of cover in this last little bit. Um, you wrote a book also, it's incredible, you know, and it's a story that, um, can people can resonate in some capacity too, and it's inspirational for so many. So kind of how did that develop for you? Yeah, I actually got started into public speaking by fluke. I remember my memory is being a family counseling type of event. When I got asked to share my story uh, at a charity event in support of uh, spinal cord injuries for Spinal Cord Injury Ontario. And I just gave a five, six minute talk. Like I had it printed out beside me, but I, I received some praise. They thought it was good. They asked if I would do it again. So I delivered a 45 minute talk, maybe a month later at another event. They said, that was great. Would you do it again? And now 15 years later, that's literally my full-time gig along with coaching and delivering workshops. But uh, keynote speaking was never on my radar, just like the Paralympics. I didn't know that it was a thing. Like I literally didn't know that you could get paid for talking. And mm. I was asked at my first or a second speech. They're like, how much do you charge? And I'm like, how much do I charge? I'm like, what are you talking about? They're like, yeah, what's your speaker fee? <laughs> I'm like, uh, can I get back to you? <laughs> I was like, uh, it was Let me funny. call my agent. Yeah. The true story of what happened was um, I, I talked to a few people. I mustered up enough energy or confidence rather to um, ask for $500. And when I said $500, they're like, oh yeah, that's no problem. And I'm like, shit. I'm like, <laughs> I knew I should have asked for more. And uh, I ended up finding out the, the girl that I spoke the year prior, she got paid 2000. And I was like, but that became in my eyes, I was like, hey, this is an opportunity that I not only get to help people, but I can earn a living living with my disability to help to better other people's lives. And, and that was a big turning point um, to use what's happened to me to my advantage to then help serve other people. Mm -hmm. And you know, what's the feedback you get from this, you know um, what's, what are some of the, like you must get tons of people coming to you and sharing their own experiences or difficulties that they're going through and maybe how you've helped them. The feedback's awesome when I can help someone through my story. I Today, my niche in coaching is helping people through uh, a career or a life transition. So many people that I frequently have conversations with, of course, include people with disabilities, many of whom have acquired one recently, and that could be an amputation, spinal cord injury, maybe mental health just started coming on, and all of a sudden you find yourself in a really dark place. Maybe your uh, relationship's changing. Uh, Usually it revolves something around a separation, whether it's uh, something that's happened against your desire or you want to do it, but you're scared to make that choice. And the same thing with from, from a career position. Like during COVID, I was talking with so many people who were let go from their job. Kevin, who am I now? My identity. You know, I thought I was going this way and now all of a sudden it's this way. Like, what the hell do I do? So I, I love helping people that are going through that overnight change because that's what I went through when my dad got hurt, when I was paralyzed, you know, when dad took his life, it's like each of those were overnight. What the fuck's going on now? I got to figure it out. And, mm -hmm. uh, but what I love is, um, you know, when someone says, you know, because of our conversation, I'm now going to make the decision. 
or because of our conversation, I'm now putting into practice the tools like I have learned through CBT techniques, cognitive behavioral therapy, journaling, reading, writing, nutrition, sleep, exercise, all the stuff that people don't want to do or talk about because they think it's too simple, easy, and doesn't make a difference. But it's all the hard things to do because you can easily ignore it. When someone texts me like, hey, I'm now journaling because of you. And now I feel all of a sudden like I'm in control. I'm not a victim to the gaslighting situation that I'm going through. Like I all of a sudden feel like there is hope, there is potential, and I can see it because I found it because I took the time to put pen to paper. Like that's the stuff that lights me up inside when someone who may have otherwise ignored these simple little things finally decides to take action on it. And through it, they find hope, they find courage, they find control, strength, the things that they're looking for to help them feel like it's not over. And like, that's where I fucking get fired up because I know that those things, we can all do that. If you're on the waiting list for therapy, you know, some people are on six month or more waiting list to get treatment or you're stuck yeah. on medication. You feel like, how the fuck am I going to get off? It's like every one of us can do those, those six things that I mentioned, nutrition, sleep, exercise. You don't need a doctor to tell you to go to bed sooner or to stop eating sugar or to hydrate yourself or get outside and go for a walk. Even if you can't crush it at the gym. We can all grab a piece of pen and paper. We can all read a book. We can all start feeding our mind and we can all find somebody to look up to. And in my life, my the hero mindset, my keynote, my hero mindset blueprint, the coaching framework and the yeah. hero tribe where my community members are all part of, that's what I teach. I teach every one of us how we can become a hero in our own story through the small, simple actions and our moments, decisions and actions that we can take every single day. That's how we show up, become a hero in our own story. It doesn't mean that you have to, hire somebody. It doesn't mean you have to spend money, but just focus on the things you can control as simple as they are. And you can change your life. And that's, yeah, I was going to ask you about that too, that hero mindset. It's so powerful. And then, you know, just like you're saying, you know, the taking those little steps to a bigger goal and so much of what you're talking about too, is just like mental health is a big challenge, you know, and that's a big part of what a lot of people go through, you know, like they lose their job or something tragic happens and your messaging can help them with that. You know, that's how they can probably connect to what you're saying, you know, and, and that's, yeah, it's a beautiful thing. What's the biggest lesson you've, you've learned in life? Would you say? I, uh, I, I can't think of like a, a one biggest, but I mean, se several big important lessons, uh, you know, something that comes to mind is that there, you're, there's always going to be a brighter day. You're always going to have another chance. You know, I've had so many times where I've been knocked down. You feel like it's over, but I know through experience when you keep going, like there's some, like I said earlier, there's something greater out there. You just might not be able to see it yet. Um, <clears throat> I also am proud that I've accomplished so many dreams in my life through motocross, through learning to walk again, through being depressed and suicidal and getting myself out of that to Paralympics, to keynote speaking, to entrepreneurship, to coaching. There are so many different times where I've set a new goal. Like the more you get that feeling, the more you believe you can do it again. And that's something I hope other people can see. Like you may feel like, you know, this was my one dream that I thought I was going to have and it was taken away from me and I'm never going to have live my dream. It's like, no, that's not true at all. Like, you can totally set your sights on a new goal. You can totally achieve a different dream that might be even bigger and better than the one you even imagined. It's going to look a little bit different, but that's the beauty. Like you can still, you can recreate yourself as many times as you want in your life. And I, I learned that my motocross dreams that perhaps ended early, I just got to live them through sledge hockey, but I lived them 10 times bigger through sledge hockey. I would have mm -hmm. never achieved the level of success in motocross that I did in Paralympic sport. And so another just one of those lessons are like keep going you know you just got to keep going and as hard as it is there's a light at the end of the tunnel there's brighter days ahead and uh if mm -hmm. you don't feel like you can get there on your own reach out let me help you get there because i know that you can and you said that and, and that's also the title of your title of your book still standing every reason to give up keep going and uh i think everybody it's something everybody can learn from it's a book they should they should read i definitely have to pick it up and, and read it myself um talk fortunate enough to talk to you first but uh where can people find out more about you i know you have a website there's a lot of different ways i'm super easy to find online everything is my name so kevinremple.com or at kevinremple on instagram 
and Rempel is spelled R-E-M-P-E-L. You can go to either my website or Instagram, find a link to download a free copy of my book. As you mentioned, still standing when you have every reason to give up, keep going. And if you're interested in keynote speaking from a corporation perspective, there's my keynote reel to check out. And if you're interested in, maybe you're looking for some support, whether that's through one-on-one coaching or group coaching, just send me a message through Instagram, DM me the word coach, and uh, we'd be stoked to have a chat with you. Amazing, Kevin. Well, thanks so much again for accepting the offer. It's been really inspirational to speak to you. And I know I've been touched by your story and I know our listeners will too. So um, I really appreciate you. Thanks for having me on, Justin. Much appreciated. You're doing awesome work out here getting stories out. And thanks for sharing mine. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Just In Stride podcast. I truly appreciate you taking the time to listen. And I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Please take a minute after this to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts. With your feedback, we'll be able to make the show even better and it'll help us reach new listeners too. You can also find us on Instagram at JustinStridePod for all the latest episodes and updates. Of course, this show wouldn't be possible without a solid team behind me. With logo and design by Vanessa Pugliese, as well as audio, music, and editing by Forrest McKay, a huge thank you goes out to both of them. Guest outreach, social media, writing, and advertising are handled by me, your host, Justin Pugliese. Finally, we'd like to thank you, our listeners, for coming along for the ride with Justin Stride.